0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: You start losing sleep, you start having muscle ache, you start to have migraines, you can't really operate as usual, your appetite either grows or shrinks, you can experience things such as loss of hair or your nails are not growing anymore, Uh, just because your body is under such a big amount of stress that you can't really
2: handle it. That's Marie Cecile Godwin. She's a user experience designer in the IT industry. And what she's describing is burnout.
1: So the day that burnout really became to feel real was this day where I woke up and nothing was possible anymore. I was literally stuck in my bed. And the only thing I could do was mostly cry It took me a few hours to get out and even another couple to have a shower.
2: I'm Lisa Leong and on This Working Life, we're digging deep into what some predict will become another major crisis in this pandemic, burnout at work. We'll hear what causes it, how to recognise and deal with it and later how burnout can even become deadly.
1: So, I experienced burnout twice. Uh, The first time was around 2012, 2013. It wasn't well diagnosed, so I just, yeah, went along with it. Um, The second time, the most serious one, was in 2015. What led to burnout in my case were multiple factors. It is never a simple reason or an isolated reason. Burnout came in my life when uh, nothing made sense anymore. I was exhausted, more and more exhausted. So I was trying to compensate. So working harder in a situation where I was not able to work as much and as well as before, plus the the lack of meaning, just doing automatic things and not being able to see any reward, not just financially, but just for my self-esteem. And also um, you start to protect yourself. And I was seeing everything in it with a cynic eye. Professor Michael Leiter has
2: extensively researched the experience of burnout at work, most recently through Deakin University in Victoria. Michael, how common is Marie Cecile's experience of burnout?
3: Well, it's all too common. I I think basically when we do surveys of a large number of people, we find like 10 or 15% of the people are having some kind of problems that really get close to what she's describing.
2: And the World Health Organization lists three signs of symptoms of burnout. What are they?
3: But one of them is exhaustion, as she mentioned, being chronically exhausted, particularly being exhausted before the day even begins is a particularly strong sign. The second one is really being cynically disengaged, like when you lose the meaning of the job. Uh, And the third one is just being discouraged that you can be capable and get things done. People want to believe that they're doing important work and you're doing it well. And when you lose that confidence, then that is, uh, those three together, you find burnout.
2: So can you give us some specific examples of how those signs and symptoms play out at work?
3: When we're talking about people working through the pandemic right now, a lot of people, it's change. Change is very difficult to deal with. And so it takes a lot of extra energy to in order to deal with a whole new framework of work. Like basically, usually works pretty much one day is a lot like the other day and next day is going to be like that. That stability is something that sort of keeps you going. You don't have to really put every ounce of your being, but when it's changing all the time, then you've got to do a lot of thinking, a lot of processing, and it really gets very tiring that way. Also, um, the other things that we found is when people are having uh, unpleasant relationships with each other, people just being rude, impolite, uh, uncivil, as we say, that that just is exhausting. It prompts some emotion and that eats up energy and then it takes a while to put it out of your head again.
1: The main misconception is that you are the sole responsible for your situation and it's very visible in the workplace uh, when managers and uh, and even companies set up all these uh, yoga sessions or how to manage your anxiety or how to manage your anger or how to be a good fellow worker. They teach you um, peaceful communication you you are the problem you should go into sick leave and think about your situation and you are the sole responsible for both your situation and the recovery
2: so marie cecile mentions a misconception that the individual is solely responsible for their situation she mentions you know the the yoga classes now you see burnout as a relationship breakdown what do you mean by that
3: yes it's a working relationship when you get hired it's a relationship with you and this entity. It's entity that's bigger than you, and, and and it actually has a lot more power in the relationship. It's not an even relationship. It's bigger. It's got. It makes the rules. So you've got that relationship, and it is basically work takes too much of both your mental space and your time for the pay to compensate for all of that. Like people are looking for fulfillment. They're looking for a sense of belonging of to a community that values them and cherishes them and respects them particularly. They're looking for opportunities to get confirmed that they're effective, capable people, that they can go and this career has a direction that's going somewhere. And then the third is that they want to be able to, at least some of the time at work, experience themselves as the person who can make things happen. And Work situations have to be designed to let people do that. So that's where I see it as a relationship. People are burnout. out. It's not because the job's all bad. It's not because the person's flawed in some kind of way. It's just this connection between the two of them has gone screwy.
2: So how do you redesign this relationship then?
3: The, the two sides have to listen to each other. Listening is a very important part of this. They've got to be able to understand what is it that this person is looking for? Because people are complicated. They're different from each other and they change over time. So what works for you this year in your job is going to be different in five years from now. And you need to have a place that can respond to that. So flexibility, listening, basically both sides buying into it, that this is a relationship that we have to make work. And when you have a relationship problem, if you say to your partner, you go off and fix yourself and come back when you're ready to be the way I want you to be, and then we'll be all fine. You go, that's not gonna that, no, wait a minute. That, that's not but that's what employers are saying when they're sending you off to the yoga classes. You go fix yourself there. We're we're not gonna change. That's not a relationship fix. That's being stubborn.
0: My name is Alice Cooney and I work as a criminal division lawyer at the County Court of Victoria and I am the Young Lawyers President for the Law Institute of Victoria in 2020. Yeah, I think burnout is a really interesting word. It conjures a lot of imagery for me of um, how it must feel to to be that match that's trying to stay alight And, and I think for me that imagery resonates with the feeling that I had, that I knew I had a passion for my profession. I knew that I wanted to be a lawyer, I loved being a lawyer, but when I started to feel on the precipice of that culmination of of stress and years of practice, I think I felt that passion dwindling and I wasn't able to engage with people who didn't work in my field because I didn't feel like they really understood the kind of pressure I was under. I had engaged a psychologist who was a specialist in debriefing and that was actually as a preventative measure because I worked in crime and specifically in family violence and I recognised that I was so surrounded by other people's trauma that the the vicarious impact of that was quite strong and it was through that process of that professional debriefing that I was able to recognise that actually I, I wasn't necessarily in the exact right field for me. Although I got up and went to work every day, I didn't feel this overwhelming sense of joy that I was going to do that. And one of the things that I have been able to recognise with hindsight is that I have that feeling now that I genuinely enjoy waking up and going to work, that I feel um, a connection to what I'm doing, that I feel like it's important. And that I think was the connection for me, required me to change employers And so one of the things I'd like to see change is the profession be more accommodating in time in particular for access to resources of support. I think a lot of lawyers will be able to tell you what they need to be able to manage the pressure and stress of their work to prevent burnout, but the overarching and common uh, sentence that would come after that is, but when do I have the time
2: to do that? Michael, the law is one profession that has a high burnout rate. Can burnout be contagious?
3: Oh, yes. Yeah, you'll find, I mean, there's two pieces to it. Like when you're going through a big organization, like I do a lot of work with hospitals, and you'll find that different parts of the hospitals, like it's the group. Like when you do an analysis, you find, well, half of what's going on with burnout is what unit they're working in, and the other half is what's going on individually with these people. And part of that is, well, they're doing the same kind of work, they're under the same kind of demands, they're all sharing something about and breathing the same air, and they've got that shared. But part of it is how people interact with each other because you feel it in your interactions. When you're with somebody who's really burned out, like it's not a secret, like you know, there's something wrong here, and you're picking that up, and that both starts aggravating where you, you are. Like it really gets shared. I think a lot of what's going on with burnout is happening between people. It's not just this deep thing inside. It's right out there on the surface, what's going on. It's not a secret.
2: If you're a manager and it's one of your staff members, what would you do if you think that they might be experiencing burnout?
3: It's always a bit more loaded when it's a manager because, you know, there's all this idea about managers as being really supportive and right there for people. but people don't really see their managers that way, they're always a little worried that some kind of thing's going to come down on them real fast. So it is a delicate kind of thing. So I, again, I wouldn't go to the word burnout as a manager at all. I would go, uh, you know, what's going on with the pace of things that are, are... Don't even ask something like, oh, do you need some help with that? I would just go, do you? Can you, are there ways you're thinking we could do this work differently here? Right? What are your ideas for just changing how we are? And so with that, you've sort of opened the door because a lot of what you need to do with this stuff is really to tweak the job a bit. You don't have to throw everything out, particularly if you catch it fairly early. Now, if you wait till people are in as bad shape as Marie was there then often people, when they get really extremely in bad shape, they end up not only leaving the job but leaving that whole career because they just can't go back to it again. And so you want to get in there much earlier before that kind of thing locks in.
2: Okay. So if the individual feels, hmm, I think I could be burning out, what should I do, Michael?
3: There's something called job crafting where you just you, you spend a little while See, how do you spend your time, like really writing down, you know, through your day at the reflect at the end of the day, how did I spend my time during the day and which part of this that I really like, And which part of this that I really dislike and what was neutral. If you hated all of it, find another job. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you've got a mix. And, uh, and then you go, okay, after you watch that for, you know, a couple of weeks, well, no hurry. Everything takes time here. And you get a good record of how you spend your time, what you like, what you don't like, what is it about it. Then you just go, okay, what can I do to spend just even a little bit more time with what I like doing, a little less time doing the pieces I don't want to be doing. And that's an approach.
2: Thank you so much, Michael.
3: Thank you. It's really great talking with you.
1: The other stereotypes around burnout is that it will never happen to you. You're not that weak and you just think that it will not go through you. We think that only the weak burn out. And you, you could think that you were strong enough, combative enough that you can deal with this. But no one sees it coming, really. And even the people who thought that they were very strong and, and very resistant to stress, somehow, someday find themselves in burning out.
2: Marie-Cecile Godwin, and before her, Organisational Psychologist, Professor Michael Leiter. I'm Lisa Leong, and today on This Working Life, we're focusing in on one of the biggest mental health challenges at work today, burnout. And a warning, we're about to head into some difficult terrain to talk about suicides, so if this might be triggering for you, you may want to switch off here. One profession where burnout can sometimes have deadly consequences is among those who care
4: for animals. My name's Dr. Claire Stevens. I have been a vet for 11 years now, and I've been a partner in three different small animal practices. The first practice I owned when I was 26 years old, so I started relatively early. In terms of burnout in the veterinary industry, it's really, really common. And um, I actually don't think a single vet escapes it. Uh, It's something that I experienced as a practice owner and um, it can creep up on you actually. And before you know it, it's starting to disrupt your whole lifestyle and become quite debilitating. Having euthanasia, death, grieving and loss as a part of our daily routine wears you down and thankfully this hasn't been my experience but I know that there is a phenomenon amongst veterinarians where if they are suffering and no longer enjoying their jobs and they have difficult uh, situations at home or difficult financial scenarios then all of that pressure can be building and affecting them and their mental health and then they see this as a viable option and that's why i believe we're seeing a lot of suicide in the veterinary industry so i think it's a combination of exposure to death and exposure to the drug that causes death
2: with me to dig further into what's going on here is dr nadine hamilton Nadine is a psychologist who works with vets, and her PhD research looked at vets' lived experience of euthanasia. Hello, Nadine.
5: Hi, Lisa. Nice to be here. Thank you. Nadine, we can't
2: talk about burnout amongst vets without talking about the mental health crisis in this profession.
5: What's the current rate of vet suicide here in Australia? It's approximately one veterinarian suicide every 12 weeks. Roughly, when you look at the statistics in Australia, our Australian vets are up to four times more likely than the general population to suicide and around twice as likely as other health professionals to suicide. Why do you think that is? Um, and there are a number of reasons. So my doctoral research identified five main things. One, as Dr. Claire Stevens points out, was around the euthanasia, so having to euthanise animals. Another is the financial issues, having conversations with clients around the costs of treatment, but also for those who are running and owning a practice of their own, it is still a business for them. They still have overheads and other costs, you know, just like any other business, so that can be very stressful. Dealing with, dare I say, it, difficult clients, and that can be clients who may be non-compliant with treatment or come in with the expectancy that the vets can perform miracles and that they don't want to have to pay for it. They could make snide remarks. They can be bullying. They can be threatening. Also, compassion fatigue, which is very high in the helping and healing professions, and particularly within the veterinary profession, which is that fatigue that comes from being so compassionate all the time. And, you know, that becomes fatiguing. It starts to take a toll. And then the, the last one that we identified was unrealistic expectations. And that can be twofold. The unrealistic expectations that clients place on the vet staff to provide an instant diagnosis, a complete cure, all within their 15 or 20 minute consultation and, you know, without the expectancy that they should have to pay for that that treatment. Um, And then the the second aspect of the unrealistic expectations are the unrealistic expectations that the vets place on themselves. Traditionally, they are high performers. They, They tend to have perfectionistic tendencies. So they have this expectation of themselves that they have to perform well. They can't make mistakes. They can't ask for help. And then when things don't go as planned, they can then internalise that and then self-blame and self-criticise and then obviously, you know, leading to other ways of coping or not coping with it effectively.
2: Now, you mentioned compassion fatigue. Claire also struggled with compassion fatigue when she was working
4: full-time in her practice. Compassion fatigue, I suppose, is different for everyone, but certainly my experience of this was where I noticed a change in my resilience and, I guess, attitude towards my work. It can be quite a shock when you have dedicated your life to being a caregiver, in this case for animals, and you start to feel just absolute exhaustion, uh, complacent and disenfranchised about your career. Uh, that was my experience, and I found you know when I was fully booked, and the nurse told me that there 's an emergency coming down rather than you know having that initial excitement and you know wanting to serve I, I would probably roll my eyes and put my hands in my my head in my hands and and feel overwhelmed and negative about it, and just started practicing robotically and kind of detached from the original passion and drive and so that can be really upsetting for a dedicated passionate person because you feel like you know a failure. And what did you
2: find about the relationship between vet suicide and euthanizing then?
5: Yes, well, when I started my doctoral research, um, all the literature pretty much suggested that it was euthanasia was the contributing factor to their high suicide rate. So my doctoral research started off a little bit differently. It started looking at the phenomenology of pet euthanasia, like why is this so stressful? Why is it contributing to the high rate of suicide in this profession? But it soon became apparent as I progressed in my research. I interviewed um, practising vet different ages and, you know, different specialisations and found that certainly that was an issue, I would say for the majority, not all, um, but for the majority, but It wasn't the single most contributing factor. And that was a little bit of an eye opener for me because again, the literature that I was reading and you know, this is going back starting in 2009. So it was a long time ago. Um, that was suggesting that that was, you know, the contributing factor. But you know, all of those other factors that I mentioned before, they all come in. And if you think, you know, we've got all of these demands on top of what is a very demanding and can be very stressful job. Um, you know, for a lot of vets, if they're working in general practice or in their, if they're in an emergency clinic or hospital, they don't know what's going to come through the door and when. So their day could be booked with, you know, consultations and surgeries and it looks like it's going to run smoothly, but then an emergency or two emergencies could come through the door and then that can just set that whole schedule. And they're trying to be compassionate to, you know, all of these people and the animals that they're dealing with. You know, it certainly then starts to take its toll. Did you find vets' access to euthanising drugs plays a part, as Claire mentioned? Yes, it is used um, quite frequently in suicides. It's not the only method, but it, it's definitely quite high up there. But also they have the knowledge how to use it. What sort of dosages do they need? Um, and again, there's ready access to be able to use um, you know, these, these means to be able to end their lives.
2: And you also found it's all animal workers, not just vets, getting burnt out.
5: Is that right? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Um, And thank you for mentioning that because it is uh, really important. I think that traditionally we look at veterinarians because that's where the research has been done, you know, and there is tons and tons of research. We don't actually have the statistics for vet nurses or vet technicians, even our vet students, practice managers. It also extends to like wildlife carers, zoo workers, um, you know, all of those animal related professions can be at risk.
2: So Nadine, what do you think needs to be done to reduce this rate of suicide and improve the mental health of animal workers?
5: I think, and this is um, what I do in my charity, Love Your Pet, Love Your Vet. We, I established this so that we could start to reduce the stigma, um, firstly, in all vet professionals. And again, that would extend to the an- animal workers in general in reaching out and getting support. So, you know, it's very hard to admit that you need help. Um, there's a lot of stigma to going and seeking help, particularly seeing a psychologist or a psychiatrist but what um, you know I'm working on is reducing that stigma so normalising these conversations making it okay to not be okay and making it the norm to be able to reach out and get that support just as if you know you would go to the doctor if you broke your wrist or something like that you know it's just because it's a different part of our body it's still no less important.
2: And Claire also has some advice.
4: My advice for all vets and and caregivers is to really be clear on your boundaries because it's very easy to let them slip and to just do one more late night or one more weekend shift Um, but that ends up being your modus operandi and you end up with an inability to say no. Vet Dr Claire Stevens
2: and psychologist Dr Nadine Hamilton and Nadine's book is Coping with Stress and Burnout as a Vet. And if today's show has raised any issues for you, the number for Lifeline is 13 11 14. And all of this week, the ABC is driving a national conversation on your mental health. Tune in on your telly, radio and online. Next week, we continue our series helping you perform your best in a pandemic. And it's one of my favourite things in life, food. We'll hear how best to feed your brain for peak performance at work. This Working Life is produced by Maria Tickle who was devastated to learn wine and soft cheese were not on the approved list. I'm Lisa Leong and until next week, keep working.
5: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts,
3: live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.